Today's episode of The Dave Chang Show is brought to you by State Farm. State Farm agents know that in life, anything can happen. You might buy your dream car on impulse or come home to a broken-in apartment. Maybe say yes to a proposal from your significant other and start a family. Or find yourself in a fender bender when you least expect it. Whatever happens, when it comes to home and auto insurance, State Farm agents are there to help. And with over 19,000 agents in neighborhoods across the U.S., there could be one just around the corner. So contact an agent today. Because no matter what neighborhood you're from or whatever stage of life you're in, check out statefarm.com today to find an agent in your neighborhood. State Farm. Talk to an agent today. Today's show is also brought to you by Zycam. I think every late fall, winter season, I come down with a cold and I just can't afford it anymore. So this year, I've been taking Zycam like it's my job. Zycam knocks out the cold at the first sneeze of the season. Other cold medicines only mask cold symptoms, but Zycam is homeopathic and clinically proven to shorten colds when taken at the first sign. Not only is Zycam cold remedy safe and effective, but the assorted fruit medicated fruit drops are delicious and they come in orange, lemon, and cherry flavors. You can find Zycam cold remedy products at all major retailers, including Walmart. Visit Zycam.com slash Chang to receive a $2 coupon on your next Zycam purchase. And now, The Dave Chang Show. Welcome to The Dave Chang Show, part of the Ringer Podcast Network, presented by Major Domo Media. Thanks to Yola Tango, as always, for the intro music. This week, we have a pre-opening diaries, the first one of the year. And it's going to be based on Major Domo Meat and Fish, the restaurant in the Palazzo at the Venetian in Las Vegas. We opened it up uh, about 10 days ago. I think it's a super useful exercise. You not only document your creative process, but you get to explain it to an audience before they see the work. It's been incredibly beneficial for me to do these with the staff whenever we open up a new restaurant. We've got a couple friends who have agreed to do them with us, making music and writing a book and two TV shows. So in the meantime, check this one out with the crew from Las Vegas. We have a restaurant in the Cosmopolitan of Las Vegas, but again, this restaurant is in the Palazzo. It's a sister restaurant of our Major Domo restaurant in Los Angeles. It has the DNA of it. We're calling it Major Domo Meat and Fish. It's an incredibly big space. It's like a labyrinth of dining, and it's got about three or four different rooms. And right across the hallway, when you enter, is a place we're calling Moon Palace, which sells patties, which are essentially sliders and hot potato chips. And basically nothing else. We're working on selling the coldest beer. It's something we've been R&Ding for a long time, and we're excited to launch it very soon. In Vegas, every restaurant has to have an opening party where you invite everyone from the local community and various press people, not even to eat at the restaurant, but just to break the space in, give it good mojo, and have some snacks and drinks. The week before the party, everyone was scrambling to get things set up. It was madness. I hate any restaurant opening. It is incredibly stressful. I literally meditate every day to keep my anger in check and to not stress out, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but I try very hard to be the best version of myself. And, you know, one of these days I actually broke down in tears. It was just so fucking hard. 
And I just wish you could fast forward six months to get to a place where the culture is better and everyone knows the rhythm of the restaurant. But it's so hard. It's like no one knows what they're doing. And now you have to serve guests and it's terrifying. And sometimes that anxiety is crippling. And it felt like people were starting to run around without any purpose. We were just panicking for the sake of panic. And when that happens, I think the best thing you can do to fix it is to actually completely be counterintuitive. It's almost like being in the weeds when you're working on the line. The thing you need to do is not move faster, but to stop and to assess the situation. And when we recorded this, I was frazzled and I realized we were in the weeds and we needed to reassess, which is why recording this was incredibly important for a lot of the managers that were making this happen. And whenever you think the best thing is to move faster. You always have to move slower. And that's a counterintuitive fact that I always have to remind myself because we need to draw everyone's focus to the work itself, which is why I sent an email two days before the restaurant opening and said that we'd be testing out a third restaurant. Yeah, it's the dumbest idea I've ever had, but I knew we needed to break things up. And while we were preparing to open up Moon Palace and Major Dobo Meat and Fish, I had been sort of lobbying to open up this sort of all-you-can-eat buffet type of thing influenced by Brazilian barbecue called Siberia because it's tucked into the back corner of Major Domo Meat and Fish in a space that traditionally has been no man's land. And it's almost like singing in the shower or doing something else so you can get an idea. And I feel like whenever we're opening up restaurants... Whenever our focus is taken off the task at hand and we work on something else, the best idea comes out. And that was my goal was everyone was so stressed out and the pressure was incredibly palpable that I felt the best thing that we could do was stop and not just slow down to literally work on something else. And quite frankly, it was batshit crazy, but I think it worked. The idea that we wound up working on before we were supposed to open up for this pre-opening party, was an all-you-can-eat churrascaria restaurant based on that technology of grilling. It's not a churrascaria, but we're using the cooking technology, but serving Korean barbecue. And I apologize that during the podcast, I referred to it as a churrascaria grill, which I know is not the right terminology, but guys, like I'm just trying to figure this all out as we go as well. Anyway, it's the dumbest idea. The idea isn't dumb, but like, trying to do it in the space and the kind of food that we're trying to make and the timing of it all, that's what's dumb. I love Brazilian food. I love a Churrascaria restaurant. And one of the things that I've always wanted to entertain and do experiment was, what if I put Korean marinated meats on these skewers and grilled them and then served them as such? What would happen? Anyway, as I say it's dumb, I don't mean that as a judgment against a Churrascaria or Korean barbecue or anything like that. Let me reiterate that. I just mean it's so uncool to open an all-you-can-eat restaurant, and it's an ill-advised way for a group like ours to try something completely new and out of our comfort zone. But that's why I love it. And listen, it could still wind up being the dumbest idea we've ever tried to execute because I don't know if it's going to work, and that's what makes it exciting. But I sort of talked about it last week in our, our previous podcast. It has the ability, in my opinion, to be sort of revolutionary for us and how we execute schemes and ideas in restaurants. So with almost no time at all, I gave the team an impossible task. And you hear them talk about it in their own words. I mean, it was full on 
for like that whole week, it was one of the most difficult things I think we've ever done in the Momofuku universe. But I think it really helped rally everyone around the finite task of getting major Domo meat and fish up and running. And instead of running in a million directions, we could just focus on something very simple. Take marinated meats, put them on a skewer, grill them, and serve them to people. And that was it. It was incredibly straightforward. So that's the lay of the land. I know I just talked a lot. And I know there's going to be a lot of names and terminology and spaces, literally like space within this restaurant that's going to seem foreign to you. And I apologize if it's all confusing because it's quite frankly still confusing to me, but at least you'll get a sense of how crazy and frantic this whole opening has been. And honestly, I don't know of any opening that hasn't felt frantic. It's, it's incredibly stressful. So to reiterate, we're opening up three concepts in the Palazzo, a major domo meat and fish, which is essentially our version of a steakhouse, Moon Palace, which is our version of patties, which is like a slider with burgers and hot chips. We're making hot potato chips, everything to order in Siberia. Siberia is not open yet. So I hope to open it up soon, but our focus right now is getting Majordomo meat and fish ready. It's really hard to open a restaurant the first three months because the expectations are there and you're still trying to figure out literally how to move around the corner and the flow of food. And we're battling things like temperature because the kitchen's a little bit far away. Like, how do we get the food out to the customer piping hot? It's going to take time. And I really believe in the team and the whole foundation that we're laying that we're going to get it right. And it's a lot better than I thought it was going to be because I always think every restaurant we open up is going to be like go out of business the first day. That's just my own paranoia. It's a fantastic restaurant already, in my opinion. We're still getting our bearings And every day, we're going to get a little bit better. So with that being said, you're going to still hear a bunch of names. Some are familiar to you on this podcast, like Marguerite Mariscal, CEO of Momofuku, and she's been on our podcast before. Ryan Schuler is a general manager of Major Domo Meat and Fish. You're going to hear from Brian Lee, our executive chef of Major Domo Meat and Fish. Max Eng, who is our chef of Sambar, but is now starting to help us out across all Momofuku platforms, and we love them very much. And Sarah Asti, our director of operations. First up, we have Marguerite Mariscal, the CEO of Momofuku and the leader of our entire organization. We've been working on this project for a, a couple of years now, and I have really needed her wisdom to help calm me down. And as you can see, she is way better at this than anyone else, in my opinion. So here is Marguerite Mariscal. I am with Marguerite Mariscal, CEO of Momofuku. We are in the Palazzo in Las Vegas. We are opening up three concepts in uh, the Palazzo. We already have a restaurant here in the Cosmopolitan, but we've teamed up with the Venetian and the team here has been outstanding, giving us the opportunity to really throw some pretty adventurous ideas out there for any organization. It's something that Marge has been working on for how long now? A couple of years? A couple of years, yeah. How different is this one? I think opening a second and you know now third and fourth restaurant in Las Vegas, uh, you learned a lot from the first one. And I think we kind of 
walked in the first time around not really knowing much about Vegas. Um, and I think a lot of people really didn't think that we would ever open in Vegas just because people thought we opened, you know, 2,000 square foot ramen shops. Um, and I think we were really able the first time around in 2017 to swing for the fences. And I think we basically did that times a thousand on this, um, which is a really cool opportunity. So what do we have here? So we have Majordomo Meat and Fish, uh, which is a different iteration of Majordomo, a restaurant uh, we opened in L.A. Um, given the proximity of Las Vegas to L.A., we really want to continue that um, as well as kind of blow out a lot of the things that we love about Majordomo. So cart service being a huge piece. We have a prime rib cart, beverage carts, uh, carts with uh, grills, um, and then also playing into uh, fish tanks that we have, which is the most unique opportunity. If Momofuku was operating the restaurant ourselves, we would never do fish tanks just because of the maintenance and everything that goes along with it. It really is, is a big chore. Um, so you know, what we've tried to do as a restaurant group is how do we use opportunities to kind of do things that we wouldn't typically get to do. So uh, there's going to be three tanks with uh, uh, hopefully crabs, lobsters. We're hoping maybe to branch into crawfish, shrimp. Um, that's super, super exciting for, for myself and for the chefs. That's one concept. How different is it than <laughs> Los Angeles? I think it's be pretty different. I mean, I, I think something that we've been talking a lot about is making sure that from the food standpoint, we're not serving anything that we wouldn't serve in LA. So no kind of cheap shot LA, uh, Las Vegas, sorry, dishes, making sure everything's really true to that. And what's really cool is that because of the proximity, we can actually get a lot of the stuff that we get the farmer's markets in LA uh, brought out here to Vegas. So we're really excited to continue to some of those partnerships. But I think you know, you talk about this all the time, Dave. I think people come to Vegas because they want to celebrate. And I think we've done a, a, a decent job in LA of making Majordomo a place that you have to visit, a place that is worth the trek to get there. Um, and I think we really want to uh, double down on that here. It's been a lot of planning. Originally, we thought that we would have a variety of people from Los Angeles uh, come over to do this. In my mind, it's always the sort of the opening team that is still together at Majordomo uh, in downtown LA. Uh, and they've been on this podcast, uh, Christine Laruku, Laracau, oh my God, Jude and Chef Mark. Um, but it's been weird cross-training. We've had people from here working with them and we've had teams from LA coming out here. And we've had uh, one of our sous chefs, exec sous chefs at... Um, at Major Domo LA is now going to be the CDC here. And it's it's been a lot of transition. Um, we've tried very hard to put the DNA of LA here. I think the biggest change here is obviously the size of the restaurant and how we're going to bring that celebration that you're talking about. We are quadrupling down on the service elements of table side carts and such. I think it's going to work. <laughs> Uh, you know what? If it doesn't work on day one, I think we'll get to a place where it eventually does. I think you're totally right. You know, making Bing for the number of seats we have in LA versus this restaurant here, which is 300 seats, is a challenge in itself. So you can't even copy and paste. You have to basically go back to the drawing board and say, how can we uh, multiply or what do we need to be doing differently to even just get to where we need to be? And for me, I, I want to make sure that this restaurant doesn't embarrass or doesn't lose any credibility for the team in Los Angeles because that is what made this restaurant. And 
you know, I would I would be lying if I didn't say I couldn't bring everyone there here. And I just, for me, my guiding principle is it has to be something that everyone there is going to be proud of. And I remember when we first opened our restaurant in Australia, everyone was like, oh, that's ridiculous. And I was like, how do we open up something that is in a casino that brings sort of honor to what we're doing? Totally. And that's our goal, I think, is obviously we want this to be financially successful, but we want this to be also creatively. But most importantly, I think internally, the top goal besides the customer is um, how do we have the team in LA feel really proud of what we're doing here? Yeah. And I think for us, I think maybe we've talked about this another time, but you know, there's tons of different ways that you can open restaurants. You can have wholly owned restaurants where we manage everything. There's some people that sign licensing deals. Uh, deals and casinos are restaurant management agreements. So depending on the restaurant group, there's some people that really treat them as licensing, right? They send their recipes, they spend one time a year in Vegas, and they're basically fulfilling their contractual obligations. We treat all of our restaurants the same, regardless of the structure, regardless of what it says, you know, in the contract, because as Dave said, you know, at the end of the day, it all matters, right? And, and, you know, we don't have some secret restaurant that you guys don't know about in, you know, the Bahamas that, you know, we take a check from every restaurant we put 110% in. Um, because I, I, I would say that. we care way too more, too, too much. much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. For things that that's ultimately don't bring anything to the bottom line. Yeah. I think that's, that's most, most of our days. Um, when we sort of, plan this idea, right? And one of the things I think people are like, why more? Why would you, what would you tell someone that's asking like, like, uh, really, do you need to continue to open more and more restaurants? Yeah, I think it's a great question. Um, I think we only want so then also keep in mind, all of these deals were all signed multiple years ago. So I think there was a logic back then of, yes, we needed to open a bunch of restaurants. And I think there is value in that. And that the only way we're going to be able to provide um, the kind of benefits, the kind of experiences that we want for our teams is if we grow. So having an, a profitable restaurant, uh, a very profitable restaurant helps everyone. It all goes back into the, the the company and what we can offer. That being said, my personal preference and you know the way I want to take this company is but we only open new restaurants when we either have something to say or it's a place we want to be, right? We don't need to open restaurants for the sake of opening restaurants. There needs to be a purpose or there needs to be something that, that it's contributing to the company as a whole. So whether that's we have a chef, um, something like with Joe at Kawi, where it's like she has something to say and we want to put her in a position to say it, or uh, you know, we're opening up in Vancouver. That's a place that's super exciting to us. We want to be there. So we're opening a noodle bar in Vancouver, but making sure that it's not – if you've listened to any of these pre-opening diaries, opening restaurants are not easy. It's very stressful. It's uh, exhausting. So if we're going to put our all into it, which we always do, it needs to be worth it. Would you agree? Because this is how I think about it too in anything we've expanded. Um, when you have an organization as we do and we have, I don't know, thousand plus employees uh, and we're proud that majority of them stay with us year after year after year, you know, we have to, and our desire is to better take care of everyone. That's the first and foremost goal, whether it's, you know, and we can always do a better job. And I think one of the sometimes weak, I don't want to say weakness, but sometimes I feel like we care so much that uh, we, we can't see the forest from the trees sometimes and trying to be a good custodian and a good boss. But 
you know, shit's getting more expensive. And one of the things that is very honest about a Las Vegas restaurant or a management deal or any casino is people are like, oh, it's about the money. And I don't think we're going to say it's not about the money. I think we want this to be a very successful endeavor because it can be lucrative. And that money goes back to the corporate body that we can redistribute to, you know, take care of totally the company itself. It like opens doors of what is possible right. uh, for everyone. Um, and really looking at it holistically uh, as a restaurant, you know, for us to be able to open some smaller places that, you know, are not going to bring as much to the bottom line, we can get, we can buy ourselves that ability um, or whether it's just taking better care of the people we have now. Um, that only can happen when you expand uh, and especially in places like Las Vegas where, uh, you know, every night basically in Las Vegas is a Friday or Saturday night. So it's a totally different economy, um, economy of scale and just a diner than in New York. I've always been like thought of it as <clears throat> this is like uh, us deciding to make an Ocean's Eleven movie. So, <laughs> so we can do, you know, a, a, a more independent, more personal. But simultaneously, I think we do have a big group and it's hard to make ends meet just on uh, the restaurants to constantly I think we've gone down this road many times and I just feel like this is an opportunity that I think more restaurateurs are have to find. And mm -hmm. actually this was sort of invented by Wolfgang Puck and John George to begin with. And John George just had that profile and most of the restaurants are management deals. So mm -hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think it's not well understood, but is this something we do more of or less of? I think more of, but only when it makes sense. I mean, I, my counter to your Ocean Eleven, uh, or maybe it's not a counter, maybe it's just agreeing, but I think we talk a lot about Spielberg and it's like, why can't a 300 seat restaurant in Las Vegas be an incredible restaurant? Mm. And so it's not about do this one to then get one back. It's let's make this the most fun, best place you can be just because other people might treat it as something that they're not going to focus their time on. That actually gives us an advantage, right? We're one of the few places that in a restaurant management agreement is doing something new, taking big risks and hoping they pay off. And, you know, in Las Vegas, having spent a lot of time here, it really is conventions, people spending corporate money and stuff, but also variety of parties, bachelor parties, bachelorette parties, or just friends just getting together. And I think we're trying to set a benchmark of being the place to celebrate. Totally. Does that make sense to people outside of our organization, you think? Well, I think having Hugo must also slightly change your perception of going out to eat, right? Yeah. The number of times that you're going out is definitely less. And when you do get that rare opportunity where someone's watching Hugo and you and Grace get to go out to a restaurant, it better be like fucking good, right? right. Like you're not wasting a meal on something. So, you know, I think that's kind of the mentality we're taking is imagine if, you know, you just had a kid. uh it's you know, your first night away from your newborn. Like we want your meal to be, you're so happy that you picked to come here. So I think for us, it's really, yeah, it's, I think we're holding ourselves to a higher standard, I think. And that's not new, but I think we're approaching it from, you know, we are lucky enough at Momofuku to have weekly regulars, daily regulars, people that are eating across our restaurants so frequently. And that's incredible. But I think sometimes you lose sight of the, of the, the, the couple that only goes out once a month 
And I'd, those are the people we want to we want to get to. I'd add one more caveat to that because this is something that I talk to Marge about a lot in terms of defining the kind of customer that the benchmark customer that we want to truly blow away. And it's not the foodie, and it's not the the person that has a lot of disposable income. And uh, you know, it's wonderful that we get those people. I think that we want the person that whether they have a kid or not, it's someone that is saving up their money because they want to eat here and it's not something that they can just piss away. And I, I do think there's a lot of meaning to that. If we can make them feel like it was worth saving up a considerable amount of money or not a lot of money, depending on what kind of restaurant we have, I think that we, we apply this rubric to sort of all the restaurants we have where they pay their bill and they're incredibly satisfied. They have value. And I think that's what we're trying to figure out. What is value in Las Vegas? Yeah, yeah. And I, I think there's an overall trend happening. There's the club restaurant. I mean, the number of shows that are coming here now, there's a big swing, I would say, in the past five-ish years towards entertainment and entertainment, including dining, and almost away from gambling. And, you know, you can even look at the Palazzo where we are now, where they currently decided to not open another nightclub, but instead to open multiple cocktail bars instead, because they see that from an experience standpoint, people want to be having multiple experience of the night, going from bar to bar, going out to dinner. It's way more now. Uh, food has kind of infiltrated the the event of the night and not, not as much a club aspect. So I think we're trying to define what that looks like. What does the night of a Vegas diner look like um, where, you know, can a restaurant be the main attraction? I think that's kind of what we're trying to solve for. Can we get the restaurant to be the, oh, you're going to Vegas. What, what are you going to go do? Like, what if the answer was a restaurant as opposed to a show or as opposed to a club? And what do we need to do to make that happen? I want to talk about the couple other restaurants we have going on here, but um, we have several guests on this podcast. <laughs> There are a lot of concerns and we have a lot of things going on within the company, but what makes you most nervous about the restaurants that we're opening up? Or do you feel like we're just going to do, we're just going to exceed expectations? Oh, no. Uh, <laughs> I never think that. Um, I'm nervous about the ecosystem of all of these things. So uh, so we have Mijuromo, Mean and Fish that we were just talking about. Um, we have Moon Palace, which I'm super, super, super excited about, um, which we're making these uh, patties uh, with uh, hot fried chips. Um, we're trying to get the world's coldest beer. We're not there yet. We're working on it. Uh, and uh, Max made these unbelievable, we're calling them half dips, um, like two pancakes with uh, like a marshmallow fluff uh, half dipped in uh, dark chocolate. So that is going to be grab and go real quick, um, really an affordable option. We wanted to make sure if we're going to open a restaurant in Las Vegas that we're providing something that is value. Um, so anyone who's in the Palazzo can can have something from us. Uh, and then uh, I'm sure there'll be more conversation about this, but uh, the third concept, which we're opening up uh, in the back of Majordomo Meat and Fish is this thing we're calling Siberia, which is the most nuts thing it's both the most nuts and the most like normal <laughs> in a lot of ways um, in the back. And so how do these three things feed each other and help each other? And, you know, is it scrap for Majordomo um, meat uh, going to Moon Palace to make something super cool? Or, you know, how do all these things work in a way that doesn't make it a clusterfuck, but three kind of unique offerings that are 
you know, adding, adding to the experience people, uh, in the, in the Venetian. It makes sense. It's also fucking and totally insane. And yeah. I don't know how to describe it. We're not trying to make it exclusive. We're trying to make it open, but it's a restaurant space that was traditionally considered Siberia, which is why we're calling it Siberia. And it's not a steakhouse. It's a meat house. And it's been a long time coming. And I, I'm, I'm overjoyed that we even got the Churrasca grill set up to even let this happen. But I think a lot of people thought it was just going to collect dust. Um, <laughs> What do you think people are going to think about both Moon Palace and Siberia? Two concepts that people don't know anything about and are definitely out of our comfort zone. And yeah. how do you explain this? Is, is it just too many concepts? I think that, I mean, after Toronto, where we opened up five concepts in one building, everything else seems easy. I think Moon Palace, I, I'm a little less nervous about. I think it's packaging something in a way that is so intuitive. Um, and that I think it will be instantly, I hope, instantly embraced by by people here. I think Siberia is where we're going to have to do a little bit more work. Um, we're attempting to do our first ever all-you-can-eat restaurant. That's pretty huge. We've kind of checked off all the boxes except for that. Uh, buffet and all-you-can-eat, basically, is the, that's what's left. Sports bar. So the education curve on that even... How are you? How are you pricing everything? How are you accounting for your cost of goods? All of this is just brand new territory. But you know, I, I think something you said yesterday, which was great, is you know you can't believe that people are actually listening to your ideas and that they're actually happening. And I think the back room is such a good example of just why not try it, right? Like why not throw our hat in the ring and see if we can do this? And if it doesn't work out, then what's the worst thing that can happen? You know. Um, and that's kind of goes back full circle to what we were talking about. Like, why do we do restaurant management agreements? Why do we open up restaurants in Vegas? It's because we can try something that, you know, if it was all of our dollars going into this and it was in New York City and you were paying New York City rent and you were, uh, you know, staffing this, I don't know if we'd be able to do this. I think it really is the perfect spot and the perfect uh, concept for this. And it's, you know, we're only allowed that opportunity by the structure and framework of, of of the deal. And the organization here at the Palazzo, it's a weird judo. They're punking me and you in a little <laughs> bit because they're just like, go, go, go. Give us the craziest shit you have. And usually we never, we always pitch crazy shit, but no one ever says yes. <laughs> yeah. Or, or we're, we won't even tell them because we think they'll say no. Why are you most excited about Moon Palace? And I don't want to say not to Major Domo. It's, it's just like, why does it have such a soft spot for everyone in our organization? What is it about Moon Palace that just is like, like, for example, last night we did our first sort of trial run. And I heard this from three different sous chefs and Tim, our CDC. I want to work here a couple nights a week. And I'm like, <laughs> what the fuck are you talking about? This uh. is making like... Sliders. That makes me so happy. Uh, so a couple things. One is there's this place called White Mana in Hackensack, New Jersey. And you walk in and you order directly from this guy who is basically keeping track of all, just mentally, all of the orders uh, on a grill. And you're basically sitting uh, surrounding this grill. So it, in my mind, is like reminds me of Noodle Bar, right? It's just an open kitchen. But like a fast, casual, open kitchen, which to me is like two things it's really you don't see as often anymore. So the way we design the space is basically a glass partition and right behind it is a huge griddle 
um, the deep fryers. Um, so everything's kind of happening right in front of you, uh, which, you know, I think when it comes to transparency, when it comes to value you're getting for a very affordable uh, uh, dish, you're getting so much experience. And so that's super exciting. Also, I think uh, Brendan, uh, who uh, does all of our design, amazing branding. It's so good. So good. It's unbelievable. And it's just fun. And I think, you know, for example, for the world's coldest beer, we're going to have those cups that change color. Like, it's the opposite. I think opening restaurants can be really stressful. And this, in my mind, is like, just like fun. It is just exciting. And can I tell you, having done, and I'm going to talk a little bit later about Siberia and Moon Palace, I don't know if it represents maturity per se, but it represents, I think, a sea change in what I want to do personally. And I'm just now, uh, I think I've always wanted to do this ever since the original Sambar. I'm just now like, okay, in relishing in it is I don't really fucking care about any stupid shit about awards or any, I really don't. And it would be nice, but I think when we see how hard our team works and how stressed out our head chefs are because of the taxing work schedule and the demands for always being on critic protocol and such, I don't know how rewarding it is. It's really good for the customer, but I don't know how rewarding it is for our staff. And to see the joy and the eat, not ease, there's nothing easy about it, but it's like we get to make really good food that makes people happy. It's a value. It has a point of view. And it allows us to have a better work-life balance for all of our employees involved in these projects. And I really don't give a shit what a critic says about it, because if it allows us to be financially successful, allows us to take better care of our employees, and again, the customers find it to be delicious, that's all that matters to me. And I don't care if it's a prime rib cart. I don't care if it's a, a slider mm -hmm. or we're slicing meat off a Brazilian skewer. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think I would say for all three of these concepts, I think that's a great point. It's first and foremost, is this going to be enjoyed by the guest? We're not thinking about anything else. And I think when you look at Moon Palace, when you taste it, like the bet, you know, last night, first customers come in, first time we've really had a bunch of people eating this food, you know, everyone walked away and said it was delicious. And honestly, it's like, we don't have any higher aspiration than that. <laughs> like if they like it, then we're doing our job. There's no like, it's not subversive. It's not, uh, you know, we're not trying to make a larger point. Um, it has a perspective, but it's really just, it's to be enjoyed. And I think you can kind of see it from the branding and you can taste it in the food. And I think that, you know, to hear what you said about the cooks and, and Tim, it's like, that's exactly what it's all about. I think this is a big moment for our company in terms of what we're going to do. And uh, I'm excited about it. I know you got to run, you got to get to the airport, but, um, We'll talk more about this. We'll do a post open your diary yeah. soon enough. We're going to be spending a lot of time here in the next month. Great. All right. Up next is Ryan Schuler, GM of Major Doma Meat and Fish. Ryan has been with us, uh, Momofuku, for a few years now, I think four or five. He was previously our general manager at Momofuku at the Cosmopolitan Las Vegas. And he wanted a new environment, and we were so happy he wanted to come over to the Palazzo and work with us on opening up Major Doma Meat and Fish. Here's Ryan Schuler and what it's like trying to do all these crazy projects simultaneously. I'm with Ryan Schuler, general manager of Major Dumb Meat and Fish. 
and now two other restaurants, uh, Moon Palace, the Slider Tasty Moon Pie Shop, and um, <laughs> Siberia, the Meat House. Ryan was our former GM at the Cosmopolitan, the Momofuku there, and has joined us and has been with us since the inception uh, of our restaurants in Las Vegas. And we are excited to have him because I think uh, he knows Las Vegas dining in a way that a lot of people don't. How long have you lived in Las Vegas? Um, since 1999, so 20 years. <laughs> it was a completely different city 20 years ago. What was so different about it? I mean, when I moved here, Voodoo Lounge at the top of Rio was was like the place to be for nightlife. And uh, the Palms the, and shit the like Palms, that. Yeah, I opened up Nine Steakhouse at the Palms, which was an amazing time being in my early 20s working at the Palms. Uh, there was no such thing as like a day club, really, nightclub at that point. Like it was like. That was hard rock. Like, right? hard, well, yeah, the rehab was the very first like day club, which like changed everything about day clubs or introduced day clubs to Las Vegas. Dining was all about steakhouses and tasting menus. And I remember, uh, you know, like the, the big night out was you had to wear your suit and tie and, 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 Swinger and, and style. right. Yeah. And like, and have that like 12 course, small plate, small tasting menu experience. And then, then everything changed whenever Tao and like the vibe dining and the SDKs that, of the cosmopolitan open. And I was fortunate to be a part of that, uh, opening team. And it was, uh, it, it just changed the way that people think about eating in Las Vegas. So, so now we are, and now we're here. So, <laughs> so do you think it's better or worse for dining options in Vegas? Uh, I think that food has 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 started to take the forefront of that option. I feel like we got into a into a uh, run of restaurants where it was more vibe dining. It was about the music and the and like who, who and being seen and and being like just being there. Uh, um, it wasn't the focal point wasn't the food and i feel like we're getting back to a point where people actually care about what they're eating and they want to know the story behind the food and then that entire conversation of what restaurants are is becoming more about what you're actually and i think you're 100 correct and one of the things that i always go to you as as a barometer for is what and we've talked about this in a previous podcast but what is it that you think makes Las Vegas dining so different than any other city in America? Well, from an operator standpoint, it's, that it's different people every weekend, every week. Like it's not like like we have some local regulars, but you're getting an, an opportunity to introduce people to some to a different restaurant, a different cuisine that they're not used to, and they're wherever they, wherever they may be from. But as a concept, like people, most people in Las Vegas are are going out to celebrate, right? Like that's the whole idea. Like people are here on vacation, they've saved for their entire year for working from wherever they work. And now they're here in Vegas to, to celebrate the fact that they're on vacation or that they're celebrating a birthday or whatever it may be. Uh, if it's convention season, people are here to, to impress, impress their, their, their clients. And, you know, it's like that's not normal in an everyday restaurant in an everyday city. And I think one of the things that you helped us learn when we first got to Vegas was <laughs> it's different when, uh, let's say, New York or L.A. is dining seems to be a obviously everyone eats, but a different kind of occasion where it's not as special, even though they're special occasions, right? like birthdays and stuff. But like Vegas dining, I didn't understand that people really want to – they're saving their disposable income for these moments. Mm. And – if you don't have it, it's a letdown for them. Well, when we opened Momofuku, we tried to do like a limited account on our on our rotisserie duck, and people would just be upset that like I flew all the way here 
and I want this, I want the rotisserie duck that I read about. And it's like, well, sorry, we only have six every night. And it just became a problem where we would sell out before 8 p.m. And then you have another two, 300 people coming in and like they can't have what they came for. And it, and we decide we, we, we've learned that, you but, know, but there was a reason for that because logistically speaking, we, there's no storage. No. Food there. no, it was a, it was a challenge in the beginning, but uh, as in any business, right? Like you have to adapt and you have to figure out and, and, and learn from your losses and figure out how to provide that. But I mean, I think in, in a city like New York, I'm not, I've never lived in New York, but you have that opportunity to go to that restaurant the next night or the next week where in Las Vegas, your nights are planned and you may not return for a year. So if you miss that opportunity, uh, some people would say we've ruined their entire vacation because they came to Las Vegas to eat at Momofuku. Which is hard to believe, but you've heard these conversations many, many times, many, many times. Because but Momofuku is only on the on the West Coast. There's there's two. There's well three, right? And so, um, you know, you know, like a lot of people, in, like like you know, the Los Angelinos that went before Major Drum was there, like they don't travel to the East Coast very often to eat at Momofuku. So it's a they plan to celebrate whatever that occasion is with us, and and we need to be able to have those large format items that they came for. And we are we're really lucky to have uh, an amazing team that are running the Cosmo now with Chef Ruby and 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 uh, you've done a good job of helping create that culture and it's it's a incredibly busy restaurant and people like it a lot and I'm thankful for that and I never forget that. Well, I, I think we did a great uh, collectively. We did a pretty great job of being approachable and accessible to all guests. Right, like you don't have to go in that restaurant and spend a fortune. You can go. There and, ha- and spend twenty thirty dollars on a beer and a bun, or if you want to make that your big night out, you can. And I think that's the genius of that restaurant. But when we opened a major domo LA, it was intentional to not use the name and to create a completely different menu that we've never done before. So, would you agree that while they're similar faces, this is a completely different menu and a different, essentially, organization than when you just came from? Uh, yeah, a hundred percent. Like it definitely helps me look at restaurants and hospitality a little bit different. Um, it's like Momofuku, like, I don't know, coming from the Cosmopolitan and understanding what the Cosmopolitan wanted Momofuku to be and like what we thought it was going to be. And then, and then coming on board and working for Major Domo and understanding and trying to figure out what Major Domo is and then talking to the people at Sands and what they think it's going to be. Like there's lots of different moving parts. And I think something that we've talked about that I that I challenge myself every day with is like, how do we change the conversation and how do we figure out what this is actually going to be? Because it's not going to be what it is in LA. And it's not going to be what we have at the Cosmopolitan. How different we, clientele too, right? Completely different. Well, the Venetian is a very different place than the Cosmo. Mm-hmm. And then we're not opening a Momofuku restaurant, mm-hmm. right? All that being said, what have been the biggest challenges for you? Because you're basically not able to bring anything you've learned... <laughs> The past four plus years. Well, uh, cha- yeah, challenges are just like taking what because I, I feel like we we like I said like I'm proud of what we did at the Cosmopolitan, but then like Christine and Jude have done an amazing job with Majordomo in L.A. and it's like trying to get in their head and see how they think is challenging for me because you know when I took this opportunity or accepted this uh, opportunity, it was. You know, like I, I, I think I know what I'm doing. Like I've done this for three years, but when, when you really start getting to the menu and the style of service and and what this is, like it's somebody else's. What's so different concept. about the style of service? Uh, I think that we're just trying to really take care of the guests in a different way and like really show them something different about how they should think about restaurants. And it's not just about the food on the plate 
or the ambience of the room. It's how you feel when you leave, when you leave our restaurant. And if you, if that feeling is, do you want to come back? Uh, if you don't want to come back, we need to understand why, and we need to be able to correct that. So it's more of a feeling, I, I would say. Executing all the card service, very different. I mean, there has been some, obviously, mm-hmm. but this is like full on, right? Well, coordinating the amount of carts that we have, like we can went from a two cart restaurant to six carving carts, four beverage carts, and a prime rib cart. So just navigating those carts through the room and understanding how we get from one point of the restaurant to another with just being a massive restaurant, like the footprint of this restaurant is like 13,000 square feet. So getting from the kitchen to the dining room is going to just be a challenge to get it there. So, And how many front of the house? Uh, currently, we have 88 front of house employees. And that's understaffed. That's under, yeah. We we hired, <laughs> we strategically hired less than we need so we could train them up and then add as we as we go. But what is a normal place probably hires way too many, right? I don't, yeah, that's usually about 30% attrition rate. So you'll hire 30% more than you need. And now you're focused on training 130 employees, which only 80 are going to make it through anyway. So we decided to go with 80. I hate focused. that about the hospitality industry yeah. of the overhiring and just well, firing. I feel like you're just setting everybody up to fail yeah. at that point, right? And no like, one learns anything. No, like uh, people, you get a bad reputation because you have a bunch of people quitting or quitting before you even get started because they, you, there's just too many of them. So, um, it's a big, it's a big restaurant. No. I mean, it's it's funny. It just it seems like it's not big, but when you start to walk around, it, it's a lot, and there's different pockets. What makes it big is that we've added two more restaurants. <laughs> We've added the the slider hamburger shop, Moon Palace, which we did last night and seemed to be a smashing success. Knock on wood. Like I still have doubts that it's not gonna work for me just being paranoid, but why did we love it so much? I I, I mean I think it's just that the slider and the hot chip idea is just something that is like people like at any time of the day. Right, it doesn't matter if you're hungry. If you're not hungry, like you, you can eat a slider, right? You can you can eat a hot chip. Like people, and again, when people are in Vegas, they're on vacation and they want to try everything. So it's like walk by, grab a slider. How we call them sliders? Call them tasties. 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 We're to grab a tasty, and yeah, and and you said something that was I I not forgotten. I brought it up to a bunch of people, and I really appreciated your point of view. We shouldn't worry about the customers. That's our initial, our, our first priority for Moon Palace should be the 8,000 plus employees that work at the Venetian, the Palazzo. They, they seem to be the most excited about it. Everybody is very excited <laughs> like if about it. We just it. worry about feeding the 8,000 plus. Mm-hmm. We'll be just okay. We'll be okay. <laughs> and everybody in that property will I hopefully. believe that number. Well, hopefully, yeah, they'll, they'll come back and they, they have to come back. They're here. Five days a week. Thousand. I think it's almost nine thousand. Almost nine thousand people. Mm-hmm. Good God. Plus the nine thousand rooms they have. What I didn't even know. Yeah. I That's nine thousand. Yeah. That's insane. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Eighteen thousand people just on this property alone. That could potentially eat that's, that's a tasty. Venetian and plots in total. Venetian, right? Yeah. 9, yeah. The total whole property. Wow. That's uh then now I'm frightened. Yeah. <laughs> um and then we had a real moment of um, clarity, and I would say, dare I say, an epiphany when we forced together the Siberia. Well, I mean, I, and I, 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 I honestly, I'd never seen you in this way when you post first day of the first time we even tried to even do it. Right. Well, I mean, you scared me to death with this. <laughs> 
send an email Wednesday morning and we're opening a restaurant Friday. Like that's one thing that uh, scares wait, wait, me which about restaurant Siberia. Oh yeah, but we sent the email Wednesday to open Thursday. Wednesday Thursday, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. It was twenty four hours, right, <laughs> right, yeah. But so, I only yeah. did that because I knew how what we needed to do. I knew I had calculated that it wasn't going to be crazy. Well, I, I think this is the first. You're the, this company's been the first company I worked for where you literally set yourself up to fail, to make mistakes, to learn from them. Like most companies, will be a restaurant or non restaurant. Like you, 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 you set up to to be successful. Where like they're like we're just going to do this, and we learned a lot of things that we never would have learned if we didn't just just do it. So um, I felt like it was a challenge. It was a test. Was it perfect? No. What is it going to be better? Yes, but it were all, you surprised at how well it actually? Went? I, yeah, I, I mean, was, we were shocked. I think it's the first time that we've ever done anything for you. The first time, and you actually looked like you were, enjoyed it. And we did that sort of quick survey in the group with everyone that came out of the sort of the mock service. And I asked personally, like most of the people here are Las Vegas residents. Everyone is familiar with all you can eat buffets, or even. The, the the several, I think there's two or three Brazilian steakhouses. Why would someone not want to work in one, number one, or eat in one? And there was an overwhelming response of three data points about not wanting to go to an all-you-can-eat buffet. And they were value, because casinos have those all-you-can-eat buffets, but I think a lot of people actually think of the verse, conversely. It's like, they're actually not not really cheap, some of them. And you could get not the value because you know what I mean? Like you could feel like you're getting ripped off or conversely, it's like the value is too cheap. Right. And it's like, what are you really eating? Are you really enjoying what you're eating? Like, yeah. what is, what is this? You have lots of options. You have lots of variety. You know, I feel like but... college dorm food. Right. Right. So value was one. Two was service. People thought, well, it's a buffet. All you can eat things. Service is going to suck. And I don't want to waste my time at a place with shitty service where you're serving yourself. Mm -hmm. And three was quality. Like people assume that maybe it's not going to be good because you're buying shitty product. Which are all solvable yeah. problems, if you will. Right. So that's what I thought as like thinking about what, why would someone think this is a dumb idea? And I'm really saying something's dumb is why would someone think it's dumb? Is it a cultural truth based not on fact, but on bias and stupidity? Or is it dumb because it's empirically proven to be dumb? <laughs> And all good things and cool things all historically have started incredibly uncool and dumb. That's true, but I don't, I don't know if it's like, dumb. I don't know if dumb is the right word because, I mean, you look at how many Fogo to Chows there are. There's a lot of them, right? So, like, right. That, like, but I, I say but, dumb from the hospitality perspective right. of like, I gotta, I wanna, you know, I, I wanna work at Mission Star restaurants and shit like mm -hmm. that. Right. You know, mm -hmm. like, it's not the thing that it's not cool. you grow, you go to cooking school to be like, that's what I wanna do. <laughs> right. At least I, I, I wasn't, mm. but even though I enjoy it tremendously so. But like you're cooking so many different things, like why wouldn't that be something that you would want to yeah. work where you would want to work? Also right? dumb <laughs> was the timing of it. Mm -hmm. Oh, for Siberia. Yeah. <laughs> well. Could it be more dumb? I mean, I mean it's almost it, like, why are you trying to make us, why, why are we trying to actually hurt our chances of success? Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely not. It's definitely not the best case scenario. But I also feel like 
if you're not challenging yourself to be successful, then what are you doing? Like how, how like, what are we going to do? We're going to wait until we figure one concept out and then open the other. Like how long will that take? And then what are we doing to ourselves? So I can understand now it's like, there has to be, somebody has to say go. So, and at that point we just have to go. And all the gears were shifted towards making major Domo the most successful thing and all the plans and people were, there was a high anxiety and a high stress because it's a, it's a, it's a lot of expectations on that restaurant. And, 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 and I think everyone involved wants to honor the hard work of Pristine, Jude, Mark, the whole team, Deb, everyone at Major Domo in LA. So on top of making sure that the expectations that the customers, like it, the whole thing has been stressful. All restaurant openings are stressful. You've been with us enough to know that one of the things that I, I I've learned from, and it's like become what I, I don't even say it's a, it's, it's a, it's a saying. I, I say it's like a, a, a law, a maxim. And it's like Alan Benton's maxim. And, and that's, to reiterate what dumb is and what I've been trying to get you to sort of embrace more of, which I, with us enough to know that you know this, but it's a healthy reminder. Whenever you play someone else's game, you're going to lose. And I personally need to see things from a, I want to say dumb, a contrarian perspective, because I think historically for us, whenever we've played it safe, whenever we played it like everyone else does, or we're conservative, or we don't change because we believe that we're going to be successful inherently and that hubris drives us, it fucking hurts because it's failure. And I am driven by failure and the fear of failure. So I want us to sort of work through that to start off with. By no means do I think that anything we're going to do is work. It's going to work. And I think that everything we're going to do is going to fucking fail. Well, I, I I definitely think back to your first point, how like doing something to make someone else happy, like trying to, if we try to do what we think people are going to like, I I feel like we're we're, we're never going to figure that out. Like we're not other people. If we do what we think is right and we do what we like and we make we make a brand in a restaurant where we want to work and we want to be a part of, and we, we put food on plates that we want to eat, then I feel like that's the start of something something special. I wanted to finish on one note. After the first mock service of Siberia, you and Brian, the exec chef here, decided to do something that you had not planned on. And to me, it was, I thought it was a pretty emotional moment for everyone. It was the most emotional I think I've seen you. And it was over something that was pretty- it was over not, a vegetable Over plate. a vegetable plate. <laughs> vegetables. It was fucking vegetables. Yeah. You know, I always think about Alan Iverson. We're talking about practice. I was like, <laughs> this is fucking crazy to me because- can you describe what happened? Well, we were preparing all day for this uh, mock service, like for Siberia, and we just weren't quite sure how it was going to go. And again, thinking about like how it should happen, and then we—it was just time to go. It was time to serve, serve you, and serve serve forty people uh, dinner. And it was like Chef and I were building up this cart, and we we're like, we have this buffet, and we have this food on like the salad bar set up, but we don't know if that's going to work. And we're like, let's put some food on this cart and, and go to table side and like serve from the cart i guess uh dim sum style but with banchan or however you want to put it and then we built this cart and chef was like are you gonna go i was like yeah i was like but you want to go he's like yeah should we do it together and it was like our first moment we're like yeah let's just do it you know and we, and we wheeled the cart out and i don't know what happened and i don't know why it like it just felt right but it felt natural and normal to do it with some do it with brian and and, and serve this 
food with the chef that prepared the food than it would be just me trying to claim it as my own and then like like explain what it is like and it just became a moment where like we we you know you introduced us to the don wall where it's like you, you can't leave your partner behind and it was just one of these moments where like it just felt better that we did it together so and i just don't know how to, to really accurately make anyone else feel whatever the fuck we're talking about but sitting down and sort of being in wonder that this insane quote dumb idea that i had was actually happening and being executed on the last second i was so appreciative that people were like fuck it okay I almost took it as like, let's just do it to shut Dave up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> kind of, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you guys came out, you pushed out the card, and I was like, I didn't think that was a brilliant idea. I was like, let's just bring it out. And it was like a card of Garmage shit, and it was delicious. And then what I didn't expect was you coming around with a giant platter of marinated and grilled vegetables. And you went around this, this table of four and you started to say, like, would you like these carrots? Would you like this, the whatever, cabbage, blah, blah, blah. And you, they're all from the market and they were all cooked a little bit differently. And they were vegetables. They were really delicious vegetables. But I was sitting with Marge and a couple other people. And we asked ourselves when you left, I was like, what do we, what happened, number one? And everyone's like, these are great vegetables. And then we agreed, but something else happened that makes this better than it actually should be. And we're like, it's because they served it off a platter and they asked us, what would you like? Mm. It was an amazing moment. I, I don't know why, but all of us connected with that moment of you asking us and then you drop it off. And then by the time you dropped off the first pl person's plate of food, you got to the fourth person's plate of food. Marge had already eaten her carrot. She said, I really like that carrot. Can I have some more? I was like, sure. <laughs> and it was, it was an act of generosity. Mm -hmm. It was genuine hospitality. It was also delicious. But you could see that it was earnest. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it made this experience like instantly magical, in my opinion. And that's not something that like we ever like. That's, I don't, those moments aren't something that that are planned. That's just something that like it feels right, and this it's what we do. And we're we're in hospitality. And you're never going to find those moments and find what is special unless you just do it. It wasn't bullshit. It was like, hey, yeah, we just did this. We're excited. Check it out. We'd love for you to try it. And I'm like that. If we could bottle that, man, that would be the fucking best shit ever. But I think we're going to try to bottle it. You know? Well, yeah. And I think like that we were actually like after the full day of, well, the 18 hours of preparation, like we were actually excited for what we were going to present. And we wouldn't, we wouldn't have gotten to that point without the motivation to like, we have to, we have to do this today for Dave. So. What I thought was incredibly brave by you was in front of the entire staff when we, re we, we reflected upon the day. And it, again, was emotional. I, again, I, I think true leadership to me right now and the strength of leadership is showing vulnerability. And it got, you know, two times it got emotional. We reflect upon it. And then later amongst the hundred plus people in the room, I was like, wow, this is fucking amazing. You are sharing with everyone what you believed in and how it was going to not work. And then it worked. But the moment that you described this was you were explaining how you and Brian were you know, like asking, hey, should we do this? Should we do this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you said one thing. Do you remember what you said about what you were surprised at, about why it worked? I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. And that we're trying to unpack is you followed what you thought was right mm -hmm. versus what should happen by past history. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Like, you know, uh, coming from like 
it's you're in the moment and you're just like, what what are we supposed to do? And again, we're just talking about vegetables, you know, and we're just talking, you know, about serving people at dinner. But like that's that's what we're going back to the beginning of this conversation was like, how how are we making people feel? And if you can find that way to make somebody feel special and feel like they want to come back to your restaurant is what we're what we're going for. That was it. And I just thought that was the coolest thing. And it had nothing to do with anything. But if we could figure out how a jaded diner like myself expecting this could be like, I think that was like the coolest thing I've seen in a long time. And it's not ineffable, but like. I don't know. I think some of that motivation came from either I'm going to lose my job today or <laughs> this is going to be the best. Fuck it. This is going to, yeah. This it's already day, done. We're going to blow shit. Right, right. Right. We're going we're to blow it out of the water and it's going to be something, something different, something special. So, hey, man, I, I couldn't be happier. Thank you for executing this incredibly last second idea. And man, I'm excited about uh, what's going to happen under your leadership. Yeah, well, we'll see yeah, three we'll restaurants see. in 30 days. Let's do it. All right, buddy. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Today's episode of the Day Chang Show is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to make French food by Thomas Keller, California cuisine by Alice Waters, and my favorite, how to barbecue from one of the great barbecue masters, Aaron Franklin. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there is literally something for everyone. It's not just food. You can learn how to take photographs, screenwrite, you name it. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV. And each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. The all access pass membership charged annually gives you unlimited access to over 60 classes and 200 hours of lessons taught by the very best in the world. I love Masterclass. It's the gift that I gave for the holidays and it's gonna continue to be the gift that I give away for birthday presents moving forward because it's just endlessly fascinating and I love learning and I highly recommend you check it out. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a listener, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash Chang. That's masterclass.com slash Chang, C-H-A-N-G, for 15% off Masterclass. It's a great deal. Up next, we have Brian Lee, executive chef of Major Domo Meat and Fish, and Brian Right now, it's a lot for him because we're trying to instill in him a lot of our cultural values. And it's it's a challenge, right? Because a lot of the things that we do is very different than all of his previous restaurants he's worked in. So not only is he trying to figure out how to operate a brand new restaurant, he's also trying to figure out how to do things in the manner that we do them. So we're all going to get there. And Brian is going to explain what he's doing. I am with Brian Lee. He is the executive chef of Major Domo Meat and Fish. He has been with us for how many months now? It's like three months. Three months. Spending a lot of time in Los Angeles training with Mark, Jude, Deb, Christine, the whole team there. We've brought Tim over, but um, you've come over from Restaurant Tao. Yes. Which is on paper and publications the most highest grossing restaurant in north america yes 
what, like what, 70 million bucks you guys do? Uh, I think the last projected was like 60 million that we had. 60 million? Was reported. Well, that's ridiculous. Yeah. And a club strand, yeah. right? And Live I, dining. You know, I'm friends with Noah Teppenberg and, and Jason and the whole team at Tau. And I don't know if they get enough credit for the quality and what they do. And yes, is it always loved by foodies? No, but do they make a lot of people happy? Yes. And I think uh, you'd be hard pressed to find someone that's changed the restaurant landscape more than them. Yeah. And they've obviously expanded doing restaurants that don't have nightclubs and they crush. Mm -hmm. So uh, I have nothing but mad respect. But you come from an operation where you were there four years doing huge covers. Yeah, 1,300 a night. 1,300 a, a night. And then we would have days where we would do like 13, 14 BEOs on top of, let's say, 800 covers. And um, when we tapped you for this role, what were you thinking? What, like, what did, we don't have to go into what you knew or what you heard or anything like this, but like, what were you scared about? What were your apprehensions? Um, I think my biggest apprehension was really just like, you know, coming from being such a system operated chef to going into something that's going to be way more organic. And that was the biggest apprehension, I think. Can you explain that? Yeah. System oriented um, chef. What does that mean? So, I mean, you know, Tao's been there for now 13 years, right? And I'm chef maybe number eight that has gone through there. And, you know, they're all systems in place. So my first year that I was there, we were just learning, you know, this is how BEO works. And this is what you need to do in terms of break it down. These are the station sheets that you need to have for the all the chefs as well as all the cooks to be ready for these events. And now, you know, it's not so much that, right? We're, we're basically birthing multiple concepts and, and a huge restaurant, right? 350 restaurant with some amazing meat, fish concepts that we're trying to do. And it's it's way more going back to cooking and you know recipe development and creative process with a think tank mindset and at Tao it wasn't really like that right because the recipes were set those dishes have been there for 13 years you're selling 200 of them a night so and you got a taste of it with the culture in Los Angeles absolutely why is that restaurant different than a system restaurant for those that aren't in the industry or those that want to know more about what we do what was it that is so different about at least the Los Angeles restaurant. Well, it was it was very organic in the sense that you know every day a dish might change and a dish might change from two o'clock. What do you mean by that? So um, take for example the cod dish. I saw that on a Tuesday it had I believe I think it was pluots on it, and then by Friday it, that garnish had changed to like mandarin oranges, right? And it was just based on season. It was just based on what they were getting it. And for us, we would you know it wouldn't. At Tao, it wasn't necessarily so seasonal, right? But I think that gets lost a little bit because a lot of restaurants say they're seasonal, right? Would you say that we actually are, like, people don't realize how much our menu changes? Yeah. There were days that, you know, Jude and Mark would be prepping dishes at 4 or 5 o'clock, and then those things would really just go on the menu the very next day. And it wouldn't be necessarily, like, that they had formulated it for weeks. It would just be like what they got from Tao Market Greens from like just that day. And just, I think that in itself is, is super important to the DNA of what we're about to venture onto here. And did you see some things that you originally, and I, I could imagine like, why would they make something this way? You mean the process itself? Just a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the cool thing about at least Demo, Demo LA is if you look at their dry storage area, it's like tiny. Right. It's like a tiny little closet. And, you know, for a restaurant of that capacity doing 400 covers, you would expect something much larger. But that just means that they're doing that much more stuff from scratch in house. 
right? And so there's not, you know, like cans of hoisin sauce or anywhere or like, you know, there may be a gochujang, but they're going to try and do and make their own version of gochujang. And so it's taking those steps and like taking what's out there, but then reinventing it to their own DNA. And it's not like we, it's not like we try to do everything incredibly stupid. That's not, I think we're trying to find our battles at that restaurant. But I do think that a lot of people that come in and observe, they're just like, wow, some things are incredibly easy and some things are incredibly stupid. Why would you make it so stupid? And we've talked about it at length in, in, in the post opening diaries and just me blabbering on forever about what we do at major domo. But I was curious to see what you thought when you were staging at LA as to like, why because like everything has a purpose mm -hmm. but i would also argue we are a system restaurant too would you would you say that's true too I, I would say that there's there's a system just the system itself is way more blown out in terms of the process and, and going through the things and when we talk about the system it's it's just more arduous than what most chefs would ever go through right like to, why I, I'm, I'm literally curious as to like why because this is all i know well i i think um so like chef max came back like a week ago right or and, you know, and we were trying to get ready for this, for this one concept. And the day before you got here, Max had done, I think we tasted like 20 different variations of, you know, these items. And for the most part, like they weren't great, but we, by going through that, we were able to find like three or four really nice ones. I mean, the percentages on that were terrible, but the fact that we tried all those failures and the things that didn't work made us so much more understand what really does work. Right. Going back to LA, because that's the first time we actually started working myself with you. I am obsessed with reflection mm -hmm. on the things that we've done wrong. And, you know, this is a new process for you and a new process for me, but it's something I think I'm a little bit more familiar with of bringing someone in. And I argued, or not argued, I'd say you've learned one offensive system in a sports team, and we run a completely different yeah. organization and system. And, you're either going to get it or you don't. And there's no guarantee There's no guarantee you're going to get it. I hope you do, and we're going to be there every step of the way. Absolutely. But that's just the reality. Not every free agent's going to be a smashing success. Mm -hmm. It's why I'm always apprehensive to bring people outside because I believe that the culture that we produce is something that we try very hard to, to sort of manufacture organically. And it's, it's just about culture. That's all. You've heard me talk about that over and over. And... The other thing is we've been here and one of the things that I have concerned is, is that, and, and I, again, to your strength is you've been navigating uh, the Venetian Palazzo for four plus years at Tao mm -hmm. and you've worked in real regular restaurants, not a casino. What's the biggest difference with the casino and the operations here versus an independent restaurant in terms of just general sort of logistics because a considerable amount of your time is matching whatever we do with what the casino does as right. well, right? And, you know, in an independent restaurant, like just say ordering, for example, right? Um, independent restaurant at Mijidomo LA, you get on the phone, you call your purveyor at like nine, 10 o'clock at night and you get your order in for the next day. What we're finding here is, you know, this is a much more different process. We have to go through the SANS purchasing. Um, certain delivery dates may only be on certain days. Some items may not exist in their system, right? We have to create non-catalog requisitions and um, build out a product list. And that in itself has just been a tremendous process by itself. Because, you know, we came over here from Major Domo LA. The product list that we submitted was like 600 plus items, right? With like 
eight different pluots and and 20 different mushrooms. And, you know, they're coming back at us. It's like, do you really need all these items? Because they don't exist here. And the Sands is new in terms of getting their own restaurants on, right? Because now they're starting to do with partnerships and now they're just starting to get get into the FMB as opposed to just leasing restaurants. And Tao was lease as well. So we were just independent almost in that self. And working with the purchasing department, working with facilities, working with the FMB office, you know, a considerable amount of my time is going through those channels. And there's a lot of wheels that turn the clock as opposed to maybe just the few gears that go. I, I learned this when we opened up Australia what, almost nine years ago, I wanted white onions, sweet white onions. They gave me red onions. And I was like, that's not what I order. I was like, this mm-hmm. is what you got. And I was like, well, this feels like communist Russia right now. What the fuck's going on? <laughs> um, and I eventually developed my own system and my own payment system because I just started ordering food that got delivered to us and I'd figure out a way to get reimbursed. Needless to say, they hated my fucking guts because I started to get what I wanted without working with the casino. But we were, uh, still are like a 40 seat restaurant. But for the size and operations that this is, I have full understanding that things move a little bit slower here. And I'm, I'm telling you, I'm aware of that. But I'm also trying to have you move faster. And some move faster, think faster, yeah. which I think can run contradictory to what I'm trying to tell you, too. It's like slow the process down uh, to see your mistakes. But I also am an unreliable narrator. And this is I'm telling you to move fucking faster, too. And I know I'm a challenging motherfucker, and particularly in a restaurant. But I'm, I, I know that there's a method. And I'm not telling you I know how any of this is going to work out. But... You know, I, I, we talked about it this way, too. And, and I think it's really, uh, again, educational for myself, more specifically, just to talk this out. I felt that you were setting goals that you were not hoping. You, were, you knew you were going to achieve by the end of the day. And you wanted bigger long-term goals. And short-term goals. And I, short-term. I don't want you to and be like, like, well, that's it. We did it. We Not like five, six items, but like 25 different items that we should get done. And hard shit. Yeah. I don't want you to be like a sense of accomplishment. And this is where I think it can sound, um, if I was listening, I'm like, that's fucking crazy. What I want to explain is I want us as a group, particularly this new restaurant culture that we're trying to develop, to want to fail versus having moderate success. All right. You know, and like, I think there's failing to become successful is more important to me than like having very modest goals. Like I just personally feel like we should never feel like we've had a successful day. Cause I think my personal paranoia is that leads to hubris and laziness mm-hmm. and all these things. So we have to create something that is almost unreachable. And I know how challenging that is to anyone that's like, that's just not, that's not normal. That's fucking weird. How hard has that been? Because I know that you're doing your job and trying to create the task at hand, but I'm basically saying like, we need to go, it's not dream bigger. We need to do more impossible shit. We need to actually make the impossible happen. How, is this sensible? It's sensible, but that's also why I'm here with you. I mean, the reason why I left Tao and the reason why I wanted to come to Momofuku Company was the sense that, like, you know, you demand. And the, you talked about this before in, in terms of with us as well as at the leadership retreat as rigorous execution, right? And just pounding your head on that pavement nonstop to get it right. And 
learning out of that process and all the failures that happen have to happen in order to get to the success. And I think that process in itself is just new to me, right? We haven't done, I've, to be frank, like having worked with Matthias Merges from former Charlie Trotters and, and his demand and his, um, he was a former mentor of mine and just, he always wanted that, can you take it to the next step? Does it have a story? Is it organic? Is Have you thought about all these different things? And the biggest part of that was he was empowering chefs, right? He empowered me to create the menu for you show, or he empowered other cooks to, you know, try these different things and get them on his specials. And not just in the process of empowerment, but taking that empowerment now that I have with Majordomo Meat and Fish of having this giant restaurant to go with, but then doing all these tasks and then delegating them and then going through this entire process with my chefs, right? Not just by myself. It's got to be like an entire team. An example is at the retreat, Brian raised his hand and said, eh, you know, we're, we're having a very open dialogue as to our company culture, Marge led the whole thing. It was incredibly successful in my opinion. With We flew in all the leaders from all the restaurants and managers and all the chefs. It was an amazing way to join a company. And you... The one question you answered was, how do you maintain the level of excellence when you have to do 13, 1400 covers? How do you get everyone to care, essentially? Because I did my best to answer it without, I was like, that's not going to be easy to answer, obviously. But I, I saw what you were trying to say is like, what you're asking is impossible. And here's the thing. I know it's impossible. I'm not saying we're supposed to reach it. And I don't know if I was able to articulate that to you because I knew you were you left with more questions than an answer when I whatever I responded with. But that that's it is like I do know what I was trying to convey was this is like yes to do the standard of excellence that say the that Sean Gray and Sue Wong Ruiz can do at Co that do you know 30 40 covers a night. It shouldn't be an excuse for us to have any lower expectations no. or desire for mm-hmm. success even though it's 1,400 covers, yeah. which is an insane amount. What I really want you and our team here to understand is we have to find a way to make that happen. And I'm not trying to say, and so it's not to seem like I'm being extraordinarily mean or cruel in, our, in our, what, what is realistic is I'm fully aware that it's almost impossible for that to have a flawless or to have everyone on the same page to care that extra mile when you're doing that many covers. Partly because I know what's feasible in the restaurant industry. I don't know how sensible it is for you to hear and how do we, and I'm telling you this because like we need our team to understand this. We still need to make it happen, Absolutely. even though we know it's impossible. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and what I took out of that from the answer was the commitment to those standards, right? Like we can't stop trying, right? It doesn't matter if, cook one and cook three, cut a shallot differently or maybe an onion, but we need to stay on top of it in the sense that like, we can't let that slide. And, and if we do let that slide, that sliding scale is just a giant boulder running down the hill and we got to keep pushing that back up, which is what you always talk about, right? And that, that standard and the commitment to it is whether you're doing 40 covers at Co or whether we're doing 800 covers here at Major Nomo Meat and Fish is those standards have to be resilient right? They have to be embedded into us and not only through us, but conveyed through our team and all the way from the dishwashers, all the way up to the bussers, to the runners, to our cooks, to our sous chefs. It has to be a full-on commitment to those standards. 
I'm excited to see what we can do together. I think we're we're very lucky to have someone that's so experienced in this whole building and everything. And and um, this is going to be uh, a hard road, but I think something that's going to be very worthwhile for all of us. And I'm excited to see what you can bring to this whole organization. And I'm super excited to be here, Chef. Cool. Thank you, man. Thank you. Up next, we have Max Ng, the chef of Sambar. Max had a long career with us. I think Max has been with Momofuku almost 10 years. As the chef of Sambar, we've been trying to get him to work on other projects because he's just a prodigious talent. And um, I think what, one, one of the things we're trying to figure out at Momofuku to keep everyone fresh and not burned out is how do we rotate people out that want to do so to keep them like, I wouldn't say bored, but Sambar is a place where for whatever reason, I oftentimes think it's the, I, I actually can't tell you, it's its a hard place to work and, and we've tried to get ahead of it and to give people new opportunities and a fresh set of eyes. So Max has been helping us out across all Momofuku platforms. I'm with Max Eng. He has been helping out in a variety of ways at Momofuku. He has been helping us out in Las Vegas. I think you're in a period of like rotating out in a variety of different positions within Momofuku right now. I think that's something that we're trying to develop in our own company too, because we've realized just how grueling and hard any job is, particularly the executive chef. And without going too deep into that, because I think we should reserve that for maybe the future conversation, me and you uh, on this podcast, if you'd like. But you know, something that I always remember what Shea Panisse did was, you know, all the exec chefs, they only work six months a year and then they six months off. I don't know if we'll ever get to that point, but um, trying to figure out how to keep it fresh mm-hmm. so you can have different perspectives. And one of the things we've had you work on is a variety of things, but most recently focusing on Moon Palace. Yeah, um, I think that's like pretty exciting in a very different way. It's uh, something... When you originally were told about this, were you like, I don't want to do this? It's not cool? No, actually, I've done like very different levels of cooking now. I worked in a hotel. I worked in Sambar, worked at Co. And then going back to Sambar again. And now it's like looking at how the lab has been functioning prior that and how Fugu has been doing and kind of like felt it was necessary to like continue that like learning process, I think. What is it about Moon Palace that we're all incredibly excited about? Like every fucking person that was working on this is, I only want to do this. I think it's the most uh, focused like approach we've like gone into something in my perspective. And also there's just a few things to focus on. It's very visceral. Uh, the cooking, it's like you can smell just walking by it. Everyone's just like, talking about how it smells outside and I think that's a very strong like eating sensation. Last year was challenging for you particularly and you know you had a lot of time to work on a couple projects and I think you sort of for without going too deep into it it's just like you had a lot of time and it didn't happen because I think you got stuck in your own way and I told you last night I was like the thought process that you have with something so streamlined as Moon Palace was beautiful because you saw multiple perspectives. And sometimes I feel like you can't grow or can't see things until it can be a little bit pared down. 
Yeah, I almost think that having that focus, it's a luxury because a lot of the times you're in the kitchen, you're focused on like 20, 30 different things at once. And now you only have two to three things to really focus on. I think that's a huge luxury, but also a very uh, new feeling. Max turned into Rain Man for like 30 minutes yesterday, giving me like how I like things is I never want to be so sure about something that I I, I want to maybe miss out on. Uh, ingredient, a technique, everything's on the table till it can't be. And something that I've been really working with Max on is to see every angle possible, uh, every story. And something that's a failure is only a failure if you leave it there to be a failure. And it's a mistake, yet it was the oils, the kinds of potatoes, the ground beef cuts, the thinness of the... of the. You were talking to me about shit. I had no idea what the fuck you're talking about. I was just agreeing because I was like, I don't want to look like an idiot in front of Max. But... It was a beautiful thing because you were just reeling off information that I was so excited to hear. It was real mastership of ownership of the minutia. And I told you, man, I, I gave you a big hug because I was like, I'm so proud that you did the work and no one asked you to do it. But what was the difference? Like you really went deep. Yeah. And I think it's, uh, there was a break that I had and I think a lot of time thinking about it and honestly it's just the mental freedom to actually just mull over one thing if there's one thing you have to know it's if you're talking about potato chips you know the oils and and i don't know it just like became natural and obviously with like the help of jj and and uh just really not giving any like preconceived notion even just like do you rinse the potato after you slice it or do you not do that? Does it affect the final product? Can we get to that in a second? Yeah. But like, this is so not you. Open to shit that you normally would have assumed, I know how to do that. Don't tell me. You it's, know, like, what the, like, that's what I want to get to is what changed. Because this is what makes, this is what's going to make Moon Palace infinitely special is all of a sudden you've come sort of full circle and you're like, I think Max two years ago was like, I know everything about slicing. I don't need to do anything. I know how to fucking do this. Really? You're telling me to make a fucking potato chip? Fuck you. Fuck you, Dave. I got this. No, it, <laughs> it's, uh, I think you've said this to multiple people multiple times, especially to me. It's like the things that have worked for us before doesn't work for us now. And that was a huge wake up call. And I think that um, this was kind of like redemption time for me to just like, well, if I didn't make it, if I fucked up the last time, what makes you think that just doing the same shit again over and over is going to get you there? And like just embracing the fact that like, what's, what's going to hurt if you like fry 10 different kinds of potatoes? Yeah, or different slices and different yeah. cuts. And I was shocked at how much deeper you kept on talking about potato chips. It was literally like Forrest Gump, you know? And you were Bubba Gump just talking about potatoes. And I was like, Max... I didn't tell you to shut up, but in my head, I was like, I got it. Okay. You did your fucking work. Yeah. It's exciting, man. It's really exciting for me to see like, you know, listen, I think it's a lie to think that anyone that works in this profession is always loving it. And I've been honest about it. I've been honest with you. There are many, many moments. There've been stretches almost a couple years at times where I fucking hate working with food. And I told you it was natural to fucking fall out of love with it. And it's a great joy to see you fall in love with it all over again. Yeah. And when you first had the stumbling block, you and JJ, right? 
working on the potato chips, it wasn't working out as well. I mean, it was just a lot of variants. And to finally come down to one uh, version that we all like. It's, and what was that version? I think it's uh, Yukon Gold Potatoes. Um, they hold pretty well, like even post-slicing. And we're cooking it almost all in a minute. The chips that the guests are having, it's probably still a potato like four minutes ago. And if you didn't do the work, Max, this is like Max, old, old version Max. What would you assume would have been in the way to cook the Yukon Gold Potatoes? Slice it, rinse it, drain it, fry it at a certain temperature, and not even try other potatoes. And what did we discover? There's a balance. Um, Russet potatoes taste really good, but they discolor a lot, so it turns out very brown before it crisps. Um, there are other varieties that don't take on color at all and spend additional 20%, like another minute in the fryer, and still won't crisp up, but it loses about 80% weight. That's very expensive too. Yeah, and, and we're not. We don't have to use a freezer. No, no freezer, nothing. Um, potato comes in. We rinse it, pick through for any like blemishes or raw potatoes, and you just put it through a machine. But even the type of blade, the type of machine, using different brands of uh, slicer, whether if it's Robocube or like Hobart slicers, even both of them would say one millimeter thickness. They might slice differently. How the gravity feeds into the slicer, it's also different. Robocube is like straight down. Hobart's on an angle, so. Come back to me, Max. Come back. <laughs> but I, I, I like but If to... you don't get excited about that, like, this may make no sense to you if you're not in the culinary profession, but it's a beautiful thing for you to just get lost in whatever the fuck you just said. Right? And, and I'm still learning a lot more things. The fryer that we use is way stronger. So all the three months I've been frying in a separate fryer, it just went down the drain. All the timers... All the timing went down, but to good effect, it did bastard. It's like that. And again, what has just, for example, learning and being humbled by the potato and making a simple potato chip taught you about everything it's, else? It's not about reading what someone else has done. It's not reading about like journal entries, but it's about just doing it and knowing it and seeing for yourself because they don't know the journal papers out there don't know what your final product that you want, but you do. So unless you put in the work and actually do even just like slicing potatoes by hand, by machine, different kind of blades, different fryer fry attempts, you won't know what the variances are when we go into full production and a cook comes up to you and say, this is not working. The timer doesn't work. The time doesn't work. Temperature doesn't work, the oil doesn't work, and you have no answer to that cook, and it just makes you look stupid. And I've seen it, and I've been this cook too. It's like, oh, this is just stupid. Let's not do it. Yeah. That's the normal response. I think now we, when you have like the time luxury to, to do that deep of an R&D, I was telling a cook yesterday that most places do not have this luxury of just trying to try things out. Most of the time, you just got to, if you can open a restaurant, you want to open straight away. It's one of the benefits of, of being able to open up in Las Vegas. Like, again, I, I'm tired of having to defend Las Vegas. Yes. Is it always the most ideal situation? No. But I think the pros far outweigh the cons. Mm-hmm. Right. And I think you're beginning to see that too. It's like, yeah, we're given opportunity to explore and to go down rabbit holes such as potatoes. Right. So, um, 
you know, I wish JJ Basile was here, but yep. uh, he's in and out on 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 uh, on new dad duties, um, and he would be a great guest, and we'll have him on to talk about all the development on that. New Palace. Um, but JJ and you have really worked on the 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 patty, and so what's the what's the tasty? Because that's what we're calling the slider. It's a tasty. Yeah. What's the bread? Uh, the bread we're using is uh, King's Hawaiian rolls. It's a double uh, dinner roll into one one uh, slider. It's American cheese in there, and also uh, caramelized onion and the patty. Uh, and savory salt. Yep, savory salt seasoned on the patty, and pretty much it. Nothing much to it. A little bit of butter, but yeah, they're so delicious. I, I, we still got to tweak a few things. Uh, oh yeah. And I was again incredibly happy to see the sense of the the, the expression of dissatisfaction on your face yesterday. You had like two hundred people just fucking packed waiting, and everyone's loving it, wanting more and more and more. And Max was like, "No, no." I was actually very <laughs> upset, but also pleased at the same time because all the the plan I had for the workflow for the location like totally bombed, and incredibly bombed, like. My, my Can you whole, explain what happened with the grill? No, the it, yeah, the griddle was a uh, 72-inch uh, Keating griddle. Really good. But the flow that I intended for it to happen was uh, not as good as I thought. And we ended up like all the chefs went on the griddle and they all like had a head in it. And everyone just kind of like uh, improvised on the spot. And Josh was there. Um, Brian was there and all the sous, sous chefs were there. Um, Tim was there and, and everyone was just kind of like tweaking as they go. And at the end of the night, it was this almost perfect system and you had 300 people waiting for you <laughs> to put it out and you know you can crush it out, but the pressure is still on. What I read in the in the log, because every night at every service at every restaurant, we, we, we compile notes and logs and reflections. I read something like we're able to do how many every four minutes? Four, four tasties a minute. Four tasties a minute. Yeah, four pieces. Four pieces. But I, I think we could easily uh, increase that with uh, a lot of our tweaks. So, bit by bit. That's it. Simple menu. You're getting cheese or no cheese, and there's no choice other than that. And you can get your drinks, and you can get your chips. You can get your chips. How hot? Um, we're gonna go for like a plain seasoning but it's not too plain it's not there's a lot of flavor it's a lot yeah. of proprietary stuff it's delicious mm. and we're also doing what else? the honey butter chips i think that's the one that's uh, gonna be most fun if anyone has ever had the uh, korean uh, honey butter chips they don't oh, it's not singaporean no no no. i don't think oh, wow. so they probably come up with that you don't want to we do nazi lamak no 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 maybe a chicken they have a chicken rice flavored chip it's kind of weird but yeah, the honey butter chips, it's like sweet, savory. Um, that went through a lot of different variations too. And I think we finally get to one that we are pretty happy. But it, we're going to change it if we are not. Yeah. What is it about those fucking potato chips that make it so delicious? Because sometimes they're like they're crispy but soggy. It's like a good hash brownie thing. Yeah. It does, it's, I watch everyone eat it and everyone's like, what? Everyone's like perplexed at how it is. It's... Uh, the perfect chip for us is not exactly the singular chip, but more of the nuggets and clusters. Like it might be a little bit like squishy in the middle, and the outside is like gnarly and uh, crispy. 
little chewy and sometimes you get the perfect chip like the real crispy one and then you just go in and out it's like a fucked up roasty it's like if some dauphin yeah yeah and it's like if you didn't try to fry a potato chip and you just put it in there pretty (laughs) much it but there's some nuance uh, techniques towards that yeah there is yes but i love it because in the pursuit of trying to make the perfect potato chip a hot potato chip right we settled on an imperfectly cooked one right. as the, our version of a perfect potato chip. It's almost like using a wok, but instead of a wok, you use like a fry basket. It was kind of weird. <laughs> it's kind of like <laughs> rotating in a basket. So that was a fun one. It's delicious to see everyone's reaction. It's like familiar, but like, what the fuck am I eating? Yeah, they did fuck up. They did like <laughs> forgot how to fry a chip. Yeah, yeah. people are going to definitely be like, this is a mistake. This yeah, is a little I bit soggy. Order. Yeah. yeah. Can you but, cook this some more? I'm like, no, 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 no. It's no, right. It's a perfect one. You You're got wrong. a really good one. <laughs> yeah, it's like the whole whole piece is like in the cup. That's a perfect one. It's like a biscuit. So. Um, and I'm going to tell you the best thing, and I know it's going to be a pain in the ass to make, and hopefully it actually has legs because I could see it being a lot of work for nothing and we have to reevaluate, mm. is you'll work on our version of a moon pie, which yeah. we're calling a half dip. I'm going to say that's the best thing I ate all year. Wow. That's a huge one. I'm not even fucking kidding. Yeah. It it, it just kind of stem. And, and I think this is synonymous in like uh, Momofuku openings and whatnot. Um, I was thinking about how the multiple concepts going to come up one kitchen. And what can we do as a standalone establishment? We don't have ovens. We don't have like pasta sheet or machines. But we have a 72-inch uh, griddle. And then I was just like browsing on YouTube as usual and uh, saw the uh, Japanese pancake and dorayaki. So that that kind of like got me thinking about how we could actually utilize the plancha um, in a different way to, to create some sort of like a sweet snack, you know. It's the best thing you've ever made. It's fucking perfect. I, I can't. Get it out of my head. It's haunting me because I've never had a fresh moon pie. Uh-huh. Yeah, and it's again, it's not a moon pie, right? It's, it's got not, origins it's somewhere else. It's yeah. it's a perfect Momo dish because it's you think it's something, but really it's influenced by something else. And when you eat it, it's totally something else. <laughs> so um, yeah, it's fun to make it, and I think it's uh, it, like you said, there, there's some licks there, but we definitely have to go through the. The trials and make sure like if we're doing it for a good reason what else are you working on here you're helping out on siberia so you want to talk is, about siberia right yeah, now yeah fuck okay, yeah okay all right okay <laughs> i didn't know it was gonna go down that way all right let me drink some water first <laughs> um <laughs> so today is uh what's today the this is uh 15th the 15th okay it's December 15th, Sunday. Monday, you got the email. Yep. I'll, I'll, I'll read it. Yeah, I've, I've heard about it, but I thought I was just here for Moon Palace. <laughs> um, but I thought I knew I was going to help out in other facets, but I didn't know about Siberia. Uh, December 11th. Tomorrow, we are doing fan mail for Siberia for all staff. Friday. We're aiming to do a soft trial run for 20 guests. Saturday, we're going to operate for a select party of guests. Monday, we're doing a soft open for 40. We'll end up doing 50 for Friday. And uh, so that was sent out the day before. Yeah. So the 12th, 
December 12th, we launched Siberia, and you didn't even know anything about it. No. <laughs> we we kind of almost had to like drop everything and just like do it. And and there was actually I felt there was really no any other way to do it. Um and I said, Max, make this happen. Let's make this happen. You and I are running point on this. Yeah. Everyone else will assist you with whatever you need. Our yeah. goal is to have at the end of 12 months, Siberia beat the shit out of major domo meat and fish in gross sales. Yeah. Um well yeah, when I read that it was I took 30 minutes to write that two-sentence reply to you. I was like, what should I say to him? You uh, write back. Got it, Dave. <laughs> we'll get everything we need to make that happen. Testing the meats now. Yeah, and that I, took 30 minutes to put it together. <laughs> when you first read this on the airplane, what was going through your fucking head? Nothing. I just want to get down there and just like, just start doing. Because but you didn't even know what that was. You had no idea what. You sort of knew what I was I, talking I, about. I heard like brief conversations about, about nothing in full. But I, I think cooking and any like chef uh, cooking, it's pretty, a lot of intuition is involved. So I didn't really do too much. I just pretty much followed sort of a format that you kind of laid out and just like went with it. And uh, I arrived Thursday morning. Yeah. I arrived Thursday morning and we did our first mock service. No one has ever made this food. I did or had any idea for 40 people. Yeah. Right? I think the major domo team really like pulled it together. Like they really did a very good job. Yeah. But everyone was terrified. I mean, I was terrified. I just <laughs> What yeah. was so scary about it? Because we've never done anything about it. No, it's it's just anything like that. Different that we've never done before in the history of Momofuku. <laughs> or the history of w- maybe the world. <laughs> I, yeah. Um, so I'll be like, all right, I don't know what Dave's looking for, but like, let's give it a shot and see what's up. Why do you think everyone was so s- afraid? Do you think they were afraid because everyone was in the mindset we're opening up Major Domo Meat and Fish? And hopefully let's get so busy that Dave will forget about this idea. You think that was like... No, I, I think it was a huge freight train that was already on the way. And for them to just like pull the handbrakes, it, it took some time, but they did it. It's not because they didn't want to do it, but I, I was there to just like lend them a hand. And I think, you know, if we, when you send out an email, it's like, we got to do it. <laughs> like, if you don't do it, it's, I think, Get written up for insubordination or something like that. You know? No, there's no insubordination. No, 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 no. I will tell you, I I plan. I literally planned it. I waited and waited and waited before I sent it that because I knew the natural reaction for everyone is like, this is fucking impossible. No, we're not going to do it. No, and I think they. And took if it I told everyone way. ahead of time, no one would have done it. Exactly. Yeah, I I feel like just the nature of it that you laid out for us would be like. What if I told you that last last week I was here? I tested out three or four different things, and I saw how easy it was in 30 minutes and how delicious it could be. So I knew I had some idea that you could throw something together, someone with your skill set, pretty quickly, right? And can you tell me, and for the record, we wish it was a charcoal grill, but because it was an add-on and uh, for a variety of fire regulations, we cannot have a, a, a open fire, uh, open fuel trusca. So we're we have a uh, Brazilian cooking spit with skewers. Yeah, it's basically yeah a tiny version of bang bar. <laughs> a tiny baby skewer is just rotating around. And 
<laughs> what are we putting on these things? I think it it would be we are still figuring out a lot of it, and and throughout the three days that we did it, we've changed like multiple things, and every single tasting we have had different re- revelations, things that we thought would have been like home runs or, or things that would have be easy to execute and it turned out to be not the case. So I think we've kind of settled on a few versions of uh, chicken wing or chicken thigh. Um, also the APL in a different format. Uh, there'll be carved table side. We'll be trying out a flanken short rib version. So too. it's Korean barbecue. Not really. It's Korean barbecue with other things it's really a steak house meat house yeah, meat house yeah it's meat, we're calling it a meat house right because it's not korean barbecue but there some but you if you ate there you would not know you're eating korean food i think it's just a very efficient way of cooking things for people to eat and now if we <laughs> i wish we had videotaped this whole fucking opening first service which is Back up. It's not even the first service. It's the first idea that we even tried to do with no prep at all. And uh, no one had even made these recipes. No one had even tested them out. No one had even any idea what it was that we were creating another restaurant in the back with a separate entrance. So uh, I cannot express to you how insane it actually was. What do you think the reaction was by people when we did it? I think Many chefs from the, the hotel and casino rolled by and walked by and saw what we were doing. And I could see a sudden look in their face. And I think they they don't understand totally what we are trying to do because we have Majordomo Mian Fish, which is a huge beast on its own. And they saw Moon Palace next door, which is also another beast of an operation. And they're looking at this Churrasco spit fire breathing machine and they're like what is this for <laughs> you know and i think that's the fun part you know um no one knew we were going to do this restaurant it's not even a surprise for the it's the a surprise for us it's a surprise for us <laughs> and i'll tell you i always try to do dumb things around openings because i always want to remind people how hard things can be from where you start and I always joke, it's like coming up with an idea while you're taking a shower or something like this. I know how challenging this restaurant is going to be, particularly for the team that's opening up the main restaurant. The the, the I would just say the main restaurant, the bigger of the three restaurants. And I could see the anxiety and the pressure. And sometimes you can psych yourself out so much that you don't actually do any work. You just think about the work. And you edit in your head and you sort of forget all the things that you sort of have to be doing because you're worried about it. And I was like, I think the only remedy here is to do something so dumb that people forget about their worries so they can worry about something else. Yeah. But that's immediate. It's hard to unknow things that you automatically know, especially for chefs that have been doing this for a long time. The things that come to your head comes second nature, you know, it comes naturally. So for you to just like put that initial gut reaction aside that you've had over years, it's the hardest thing to do. So there's no shortcut way to get there. But do you think that people, the the the, the people that came in to try it out, you think they had a good time? Uh, they definitely had a good time. Fucking crazy, right? It was it was the, <laughs> the weirdest service I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, and and something just happened like organically. How how Ryan just goes about showing 
the the big plate of vegetables and I, I think that really just showed us that we just got to do it. You know, we've been trying to figure out a better way to create a system to cook for a long time. And that starts all the way from like, do you cook everything sous vide to this, this, or this? Or what's the new way? I think this is it because it's so insanely dumb. Mm. Would you, as an ambitious young cook, younger cook, like 10 years ago, say like, this is what I want to do? No, because I've been to a terrestrial area and 10 years ago, I was a younger person. And uh, it always been thought as uh, ethnic driven cuisine and nothing really gripes me about it. But now just looking at it with different eyes, it's very, very challenging way to cook. I would dare any budding cooks to come and step on the line and cook that to the best way possible. It's not as easy as you would think, but if you know what you're doing. And it's sort of the same revelation we had with the vertical spit. It's like, this is awesome. The, the traditional artistry is sort of stupid, right? Like, I love that we've embraced technology that has been widely accepted by Brazil in the cooking methods, and we've put a lot of Korean elements on it, but also embracing the style of service. Let's streamline this so we don't overload our servers with so much information that what they forget is how actually to be a like good person to a guest instead of being a fake ass like server. You know what I mean? And we get real personality, but more importantly, their main goal is I got this hot meat. My job is to get this <laughs> as fast as possible to the table, slice it, you give it to them and eat it and eat it. That, That's it. Any questions that you might have will will be answered when you put it in your mouth. And, and then like, okay, it. I sliced that. And then the next person gets the other slice of my reaction. And then every, and then he cooks again and gets my reaction. And we're just bombarding the table. It takes all the, the meze shit that I love so much about the food in, in uh, like in Istanbul that I was there earlier or Korean food with all the banchan or antipasti. I think about Chebrea, Chebreo in, in Florence and all these things or even Ethiopian food and all these elements that I love and respect, but I'm not making those food. I don't want us to make those foods, but I want to recreate that experience of just being like crushed with food, like instantly. And it's just like, it's a conversation starter and you don't have to wait for the stupid formalities of like, okay, when yeah. the guest comes in, you got to wait 15 minutes yeah. before you drop the drink menu. And then you do all this other stupid ass shit. Then you drop bread and dinner doesn't start till amuse gets dropped. I think it's also very intuitive for the diners to just, come in and sit and suddenly you're just being greeted with an array of things that you would have to go through the whole process of reading the menu and like understanding what to order and then talking to someone else. By that time, it's 30 minutes on. Yeah, I'd argue that I could see someone that's more traditional saying that's not cooking. That's, that's not hospitable. Yeah. That's like some West Coast offense motherfucker that says the Ravens, that's not beautiful football. You know what I mean? It's like, no. Maybe you make ugly shit. <laughs> and I mean that. Yeah. It's like, I'm completely behind this, even if it fails, because I think it's so liberating. Because mm -hmm. I think one of the things that I personally have tried to do is sort of maybe examine what is actually necessary and what's stupid in food. And now I'm like, wait, I thought we went to the end, but I think we've just begun at really looking at the dumbass shit that we've inherited. Yeah. I think it's going to work. We'll have to see. 
Up next, we have Sarah Asti, our Director of Operations. Sarah Asti, one of the most beloved employees of all of the Momofuku universe. She is not happy with me at all. Why are you so unhappy with me right now? I just don't want to do this. You don't want to do this? Why? It's very difficult. You know, it's difficult, which is why we're doing it. (laughs) I know, which is why I hate you. (laughs) What is your technical role? Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. Yeah. Um, Operations. Head of operations. One of your strengths is that you are highly invested in pretty much every single person that you work with and works for this company. And you've described yourself in your own family as the responsible one that does just whatever needs to happen to keep everything like in order. And that's more or less is your still your same job now. And that's also one of the reasons why I think it's making your job really hard is because what you've done to get you to this point is now proving to be detrimental potentially to Mm -hmm. how you can have a personal life, to how you can actually be useful to other people. And to, I think you have the one job where you're actually trying to pursue efficiency. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think about this all the time. It's a role that's needed in any organization, but particularly at Momofuku, we are every day battling efficiency in the pursuit of something better, whether it's something more creative or something that hasn't been done yet or something that provides a new experience or something fresh. Uh, And it's really, really hard to do that while at the same time, you know, we're a big company now. We have a lot of people to manage. We've got a lot of things to do. We have a big responsibility to be a great employer. And that also requires organization and efficiency. And so trying to do 100% organization and efficiency and 100% fucking shit up all the time uh, and living in that chaos is <laughs> it's hard. We had our sort of opening party last night and we reflected, I think, right before it. And you had, I feel like, a sense of calm. Dare I say calm? What did you explain to me as I think I see what I need to be and do? Uh, well, I mean, we've been talking a lot about this this week leading up to a lot of these milestone events. Yesterday was one of them. Um, I think I have just started to realize that, you know, as you said earlier, I do often have uh, a compulsion to take care of everything. And I think the biggest jump in this new role is I'm still taking care of everything, but in a much different way, right? The approach has to change. So what dawned on me yesterday is, you know, it's not my job necessarily to um, make sure every single puzzle piece is in place. It's more about making sure all of the key people, the key individuals who are responsible to pull off the night are doing exactly what they need to do. And someone to say, hey, you know, don't spend your time on X, Y, Z. You need to be doing this over here or that over there. And someone just to have that like perspective to help the team win. Um, and that that's that's a different thing for me to do. I'm used to just sort of jumping in and doing everything. Um, and so I'm I'm learning how to do that in a different way. 
And not only are you learning to operate a 13,000 square foot three restaurant <laughs> operation here in the Palazzo, uh, this week we saw each other in New York City at the second yeah. floor of YO. And um, everyone in the room was crying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> everyone was shedding a tear. What yeah. happened? And there were tears of happiness. Yeah. What, what happened? Uh, I mean, it's a long haul. Opening a restaurant is brutal. <laughs> Um, and we've been, we've been trying to open, you know, all phases of YO since for a year now, uh, we've got the downstairs open. We've been working on the upstairs now for a while. It's been a long haul. We've got a bunch of new people working together that have never worked together before, but a lot of existing Momo people, right? So that's a, that's been an interesting dynamic and, you know, you, you do not let us succeed (laughs) until we actually truly earn it um and for l2 um we've tried a lot of times and it's always been pretty critical feedback and i think this week we finally got somewhere and that was really moving to everyone um it feels good right we're all human we all want we all want that recognition and i think the team at at yl2 finally saw the light like hey okay we're getting somewhere we can do this Unexpectedly emotional. Yeah, we are, we are, we are at our uh, end of our sanity. Yeah, I think we're beyond it. Yeah, <laughs> which is why we've been having, and Marge has been working closely with Sarah, and Sarah is again so sort of the the glue with everything right now as to how we can be better versions of ourselves. And uh, it's hard to not be you. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's really hard to help others be better versions of themselves while you're trying to do it yourself as well. I think that's, you know, it's hard to do it. It's constant insecurity. It's constant questioning. And it's, it's a hard, you know, place to live in. But it's also, you know, there are moments where it, it, it comes together. It's like, yes, we're opening four restaurants and that's absolutely insane but we're doing it. And if we hadn't been pushed there, would we have ever even gotten to this point? Would I ever have said, I can be involved in any way in a project where four openings are happening at one time? Absolutely not. With all that's happened this week from our sort of uh, breakthrough at YO to opening night last night to the launch of (laughs) Siberia to the opening of Moon Palace, when we look back on this week, what do you think we will be talking about as a case study for learning from and to constantly teach to everyone else? Uh, I mean, there's there's always a ton of lessons, but I think the theme of this week, both for me as an individual, but also for our team as a whole, has been, you know, it's normal to be afraid, but sort of cut the shit at the end of the day. Being afraid is only going to paralyze us, and you know we've we've we are doing a lot. And when you're doing a lot, it's easy to get paralyzed as a team. You kind of get overwhelmed, and things just start to stop. People get so stressed out. And I think what we learned this week is you have to push through that, and we have to have some leadership on the team that pushes through that because sometimes the answer is just you know barrel ahead, like do something different, right? Don't let the fear and the stress slow you down. Get out of your own head. Stop editing so much. Just do it. Um, 
and we did that, right? We we weren't planning to start mock services for Siberia for a while. Or um, maybe never. <laughs> but doing it this week uh, was an injection of energy for the team. Um, Can you explain that? Like, if you're not here, that would be hard to understand. Like, wait, I'm doing more work and that's made everything better? What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> yeah, it's very counterintuitive. Um, I think the, you know, the best way I can think about it is when there is so much in front of you um, and the stakes are so high and it's intense and people start to get paralyzed. And so you can do, you can deal with that a number of ways. And the way we chose to deal with it this week is, you know, just make it, just start making decisions, right? Just try something. Who cares if it fails? Who cares if it goes down in flames? Um, for us to say last minute that we're going to do a mock service for 80 people, two turns, we're going to, you know, throw some stuff on the spits. We're going to, we're going to figure it out. Um, that forced us not to think about the stress. It forces you to think about what's in the present moment and be present. Um, and you get better results that way. And at the end of the day, the team's able to look back, you know, we're, we're closing up shop at midnight or whatever. We're thinking back on the night and everybody's energy was high. And, and that carried through for the next three days. So I think that for me was definitely the biggest lesson. I was searching for a way in my head to get this team more motivated. Um, and what I realized after the fact was like, holy shit, everyone is, everyone could do, we could keep doing this for hours. Um, and I didn't, I didn't realize that that would happen before we did it. I had no idea either. <laughs> <laughs> so really, I just knew that we had to break through the inertia, right? Yeah. And yeah. Man, there, how would you explain, I mean, can you do a better job explaining than I have over this podcast with all the people we've interviewed, why I think or someone might think the decision to do Siberia and the, the, the concept of it was a dumb idea? Like, did you think it was a dumb idea? On the surface? Yeah, of course. I mean, I had this moment last night, to be honest, where I got so pissed at you in my head because it was towards the end of the night and I we had started serving Moon Palace and I came out from the restaurant and I'm standing in the, the atrium here and I'm looking to my left and I'm seeing Major Domo meat and fish full of people having a good time. And then I'm looking to my right and I'm seeing Moon Palace jammed with people um, a space that hasn't been activated in a long time here. And then I'm thinking about what's behind me, uh, this, this third, you know, baby that we're trying to, to, to push forward. And I, the energy was good. And I thought to myself, you know, fuck, like all of this shit sounds so stupid. And I always think it's crazy. At the end of the day, it works. Like I can't, I can't argue with the fact that it works. Um, but yeah, it's, when we first looked at it, it it feels like too much. Every single day, we were just in there talking with, you know, as a team, how are we going to work through the next three weeks? Because now we want to do things earlier and faster. Um, and we're working through the logistics of that and the planning, but, and it all feels like it's too much and, and that it's a dumb idea, but everybody's bought in now. And now everybody's committed. So I, I don't know how that works. Um, <laughs> I, don't <either. laughs> I don't know. I haven't figured that out yet, but. I was talking to Chris about this, and I think the best way for me to explain to myself and to you was 
I think to accept that it's dumb. And yeah. Accept that it's going to fail. And then now let's be open to how it's going to survive and then thrive. But the way I looked at Siberia and more or less even to Moon Palace, and I don't always know if Marge agrees with me any of this. In fact, I know she doesn't, which is why <laughs> she's the boss. Was, and, and it has nothing to do with the fact that we're in a casino. But I looked at it as this is house money. Like, it could just be a private dining room space that's very sleepy. Mm-hmm. We could work a little bit harder. And if it works, and even remotely well, it'll really ha- yeah. benefit the main restaurant, where is called Major Dome Meat and Fish. But if it does, huge numbers. And of course, I've been pissing everyone off by saying, we're going to beat the shit out of Major Dome Meat and Fish here because it's the underdog. And yeah. I want us to be reminded that anything is possible. Yeah. But also, like, there are moments to be dumb. And I want us to be dumb when if it fails, it'll hurt, but it won't be the end of us. What's going to be dumb is if we actually play it safe. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's that's true. And we've seen, you know, we have lived through how difficult it is to open for additional meal periods after we open a restaurant, right? It's It's harder on the other side. Once you are open to the public, all bets are off and the stress becomes a different kind of stress and the pressure becomes a different kind of pressure. So, you know, to your point, it's better to put the pressure on ourselves. We have skin in the game and let's do it now as opposed to trying to figure it out later when we're already trying to, you know, fill 300 seats a night for meat and fish. At the end of the day, who cares? That's why it's just like, I want you, particularly you, to just sort of have a sense of liberation because it's like, wait, I don't have to worry about this. It's already going to fail. So let's have some fun with it. Yeah. So because if someone worries more than me, it's definitely you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yep. Pretty good at that. Yeah. See, that wasn't so bad, right? (laughs) Done. All done. Okay, well, you've heard from a variety of people. Please check us out when we do a post-opening diaries. We're still in the midst of figuring it all out. I'm really happy where the food is at. We need to get better across all areas. The service element, the sort of timing of everything, just filling out the room in the main dining room is is still taking some time. I'm excited that Tim Magnum who was our executive sous chef in LA has now decided to join us as CDC. And I don't know if we could have gotten to this point without him. So uh, thank you, Tim. And a lot of people for major domo, Jude, Christine, Mark, Deb, and a few others have come by whenever they could and helped us figure out how to get this restaurant, not just functional, but operating at a high level. And we have a lot to improve upon. So for those of the you individuals that have come and visited us and dined with us. Thank you very much. But we have a lot to figure out and we'll talk about that at a later date. Anyway, this has been a very long podcast. We will get to some Ask David Major Domomedia.com questions later. But again, if you have an idea for pre-opening diaries that deals with a creative endeavor, whether it be books, photography, arts, 
comedy, you name it, anything that's a creative project that you're about to release, please send us a DM or email us at askdave at majordomomedia.com. We've gotten several wonderful submissions. We're going to follow up with you guys if we haven't already and very excited about doing some pre-opening diaries with you guys. And if you have any questions, give us five stars on iTunes and uh, put in a question and we'll answer that next week. And or again, just email us at asdave at majordomomedia.com. I've talked way too much. Thank you guys. Stay tuned next week.